Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, the show is never about me. It is who I have brought to you today. And who I have brought to you today is a set of amazing game designers that will be talking about their game Embrace a Swamp Creature. Second edition, we'll talk about how we got there. I would like to welcome the greater collective, the Dice, and today's system member present, Finley. Welcome to the show, Finley. <sighs> Hey, hello, hello. Yes, I am Finley. My pronouns are she and he, and I am a system member in the Dice, where we just collectively tend to use they pronouns. Do you want me to say a bit more about that? Yeah, you know what? In addition to that introduction, would you just kind of, if this is, you know, this is my first time engaging with this identity type and so I would love if you're open to it to present what, you know, plurality is and how the audience members can engage with that in a positive manner. Yeah, absolutely. So, the best way I think of describing plurality that I have found or that I tend to use is like a multiple self-aware entities i guess because i I see entities a lot of thing and then i always pause it and be like that sounds weird but i get that it is being used to i like plural tends to be used as a quite broad term encompassing a lot of different experience so that makes sense there multiple self-aware entities in one body so i finley currently fronting in the dice's body But, you know, other times of day, there may be different individuals who would front and often have different experiences, different names, different, you know, they they act different, frequently have different pronouns. And we frequently switch between those people and our life is sort of a set of of coexistence almost of, of... sharing our our space and our literal body with with each other and that is a thing that i don't always represent 
in our games, but with How to Embrace a Swamp Creature, both in the first and the second one, actually, that was a thing we we really included as content because it was a desire to sort of represent ourselves there. Thank you. Thank you for th- for sharing that and being vulnerable here today. So additionally, just because this is an RPG podcast, either speaking for yourself, Finley, or for the greater collective of the dice, what has been sort of your RPG lineage? How did you get involved in, or any of you get involved in playing? and Or how did any of you start designing? You yeah. know what I mean? So I was thinking recently, I was thinking that I plausibly might imagine my like rpg i feel i feel, I tend to think of like my rpg journey as having began fairly recently but i was recently thinking like oh i guess i do have a large amount of almost like role-playing prehistory like like a precursor to this thing because i definitely was you know as a child doing literal sort of like play pretend like at an age that was maybe later than a lot of a lot of the other children like it was not a thing that hugely went away for me and i definitely recall i'm saying me in this instance that is because we realized we were plural almost it's january now like a year and a half ago so i don't we don't necessarily remember who was around when we were you know definitely children but even you know close years before that so i'm saying i but that's more of a out of confusion rather than me explicitly identifying that person who was a child as Finley. But I remember also as a kid, as well as, you know, at a a very extensive amount of of playing pretend even to a later age, we spent a lot of time on two message boards where we were doing, are you familiar with the phrase E-Fed? E-Fed? No, I am not. Okay, so this is... Was I was going to say was, but I think this is still a thing, just in certain places I am not experienced it anymore. It's sure for E-Federation, it was wrestling fans who would roleplay as, as wrestlers, either of their own creation or wrestlers who already existed, and people would run an E-Fed where they were booking each other against it. Like, whatever the structures of gaming there, I don't entirely know. I think often there may have been, like, an arbiter who was, you know... I think the way it tended to work is you would have your character, you'd write out a script that was a promo, and then often someone would decide who won that, and they'd write up a match. But I did that, I did that a lot, I remember, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's definitely role-playing. Like, that's definitely role-playing games even, just, like, very unrelated to what I do now. And I did a similar thing with Power Rangers role-playing on a message board, which I also... Yeah. I remember that message board got nuked, like, three times. <laughs> the, the games we were in always had to restart because someone wasn't playing, paying, like, whatever the subscription fee is. But I think of that as, like, my prehistory for role-playing, and I tend to think of my start with role-playing games being much more recent. And I guess that goes back to... It would have been around 2017... Mm-hmm. When I moved, I basically moved into a house with people I hadn't known before. I just threw a spare room. And one of those people who I came very close to said, Hey, do you want to? I think this would have been on a weekend, said, Do you want to go to this London indie RPG meetup? 
And at this point, I have no real idea what RPGs are. I, I had a sense that like tabletop RPGs were a thing. I knew that was distinct from like computer game RPGs. I had no idea how any of these worked. I could not have explained what Dungeons and Dragons was. I don't know what my guess would have been at that time. I probably would have been like, well, I know it's about like this genre and I guess it's that, but I don't. I like I, it was a thing I was very clueless about, but I enjoyed hanging out with this person, and I went and I believe maybe with one other friend as well. But I went to that, and so it was an indie RPG meetup specifically. So I want to say the first game I played, and I feel really bad that I don't know the name of this, and I did try to look it up recently, and I and I couldn't with any confidence say, oh, it was probably that. But it was a GMless cyberpunk thing where I just. Yeah, like vibe of that quick enough that like I, I got to pace with oh this is what I do and it's it's making up stories. I was suddenly like and I was like, Oh, I love doing that. I've loved doing that for like most of my life. So <laughs> instantly kind of jowled and then went back a, a definitely a few other times a month. And so yeah, a lot of the first RPGs I played, some I remember, some I don't. The one I mainly remember is I remember playing um, a session of Dream Askew. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, just talking to the friend who had, like, you know, taken me along his first couple of times, and he was just like, oh, this is really amazing. This is such a, a fun way of of playing these games. Because everything I was doing at that time was one-shots, but I was like, I really just want to play, like, more of this specifically. And at the time, I did then do some designing, because one of the games I played, another one that unfortunately I cannot remember the name of and sometimes people would go to this group and play test games so i'm like there are certain possibilities of games here where it's like maybe they didn't get released or maybe they did but mm. i'm very altered from what it was it was saying about it was a series of like a card-based prompts like going along a journey and it was about like a military thing which i remember like when it was pitched i didn't really care for it because i just i didn't i don't care hugely for military fiction but i was mm. like oh we're turning over these cards and reading these prompts and role-playing about that. And it was like, this is so fun. And so the first game I designed was because I wanted more games like that, which and I was bad at being able to search out whatever games like that were. But the first game I designed, I never released and then actually stopped making stuff for a while. It was a, it was a game about a band who had made a deal with like, a devil essentially and it was you being on this tour with the idea of like oh first card is your first stop like this last card is this last stop and it's you sort of in this pressure cooker environment as you have made like this horrible deal i guess it was like a sort of spinal tap but faustian in a way <laughs> i read it back recently and was like oh this is oddly solid for a for a first thing but i at the time i just had no idea of like where an rpg scene was i was just doing this sort of like on my own with friends who I lived with or were around. And I remember at one point asking, like, where do you go to find out more of RPGs? And I think, yeah, my friend was like, well, I think everyone hangs out on Google Plus. And I was just like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not getting a Google Plus account just for this. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and then it lost, and then it just drifted from my attention for quite a few years. And at that time, that was us all having done that under an assumed, as an assumed singular individual, which is Kayla, who is 
a separate person in the system and does have some credits on games. But I, I, I sort of then slept off of this stuff because I started doing stand-up comedy and I started training to wrestle. And the wow. wrestling training I usually went to was the same day the London Indie Meet was on. And I just sort of prioritized a different thing. So I guess fell away from that for a couple of years of at least like doing and designing. I played games in that time, but it was always games that were pitched to me by my by my housemate partner who I lived with and still live with actually. But it was so I played I did like multiple sort of Monster Hearts sessions and really mm-hmm. enjoyed that and playing Monster Hearts and having also enjoyed Dream Askew at this one time at the Indie Meet meant I'd looked into other, like, Avery Alder Alder games. And so when I was recovering from a surgery, I ran, like, a few games of Ribbon Drive, the sort of, like, Mm playlist-making road trip game. But I I was not someone who was paying attention to games that were coming out. It's like I might pay attention to other games made by people who have made a game I have played because someone showed it to me. Um, Mm -hmm. The year before... Even the months before the pandemic, we I did a Blades in the Dark campaign and was really enjoying that. But I think what brought me back to design was probably the itch for racial justice bundle, which I mm-hmm. bought just on the basis of like partly it was you know wanting to. I was like, oh, this is a good cause. I should put some money to this, even though I don't really play much RPGs or computer games. I'll still do that and while looking through rpgs that run there because i wanted to read more i discovered sleep away and sleep away was the first game i became aware of that that it was the first time i became aware of the fact that like belonging outside belonging was now a system outside of just this one game that worked like that and it was like oh wow more games work like this that's amazing and all I've all I've ever wanted. And so definitely like so I was paying more attention to RPGs from that point on because I was there was just a lot more designers I was suddenly aware of and there was more games I had access to and was like, oh I can read a lot more games suddenly. And after we the system had discovered that we were plural, we were having like a not great time, you know, it's it's the middle of the pandemic, there was some other not particularly enjoyable, like personal stuff happening. And we ended up hyperfixating on Blaseball, the, I want to say like computer bidding, the idle game, Blaseball. Yeah. And we had got involved in Discord community for the Crabs team. And around, I want to say Christmas 2020, they were running a game jam. It just as a sort of, oh, anything, because the baseball was on hiatus but lots of people still wanted to to hang out in that sense and i or we actually i did not make either of these first two games but we ended up making like two sort of lasers and feelings hacks and enjoyed enjoyed doing that a lot and we're like well what if we designed more games now what if we did more stuff and we at this point had a twitter account which was a system Twitter account where we were following lots of people through Blazeball. And some of those people were also other RPG people. So we were becoming more aware of individual designers. And Riley Hopkins, the designer of Interstitial, was, is, I believe, actually, is a Chicago Firefighters fan, a Blazeball team. So I followed 
Riley Hopkins for that reason, because, oh, they're a baseball person. And I saw them tweeting about yeah, record. Yeah. Oh, what was that? I was just, I was agreeing. Hell uh, yeah. Great. And so I saw about record collection 2K21. And that idea it seemed really enjoyable to me. So I made two games off of that, one of which was another Laces and Feelings hack. But the other one was the first edition of How to Embrace a Swamp Creature, because which gradually within it, I feel, is where I discovered like what I wanted to be doing with game design. In the sense of like doing the first edition of How to Embrace a Swamp Creature is I was like, oh, I've done something that I really like that feels good in a way beyond just like this is fun i feel like oh i've i've basically it was the is i feel sorry i'm really stumbling over what's that i just pause and try and formulate my thoughts a bit you're good doing how to embrace a swamp creature the first edition made me realize the game design and the writing around game design could be an avenue of not just like creating fun toys but also expression because i felt like i expressed a lot of complicated feelings i had about the place i grew up in and experiences of growing up sort of like queer and neurodivergent there i'm saying i there that swamp creature version one was also a group effort as well as that we did different pieces there but we realized at that point oh game design can be really cool expression and i guess we kind of just became hooked on that and so we're joining more game jams and the way we ended up in a lot of the community, like discord communities and people we now know through that was mainly through game jams and then following people through other people. Like just as a comparison of how I first became aware of this podcast, which I, I am a big fan of this podcast is because I, while looking for game jams just because I was like, I need a sense of direction, but I want to write more games. I saw the Carter game jam. That seemed interesting. Mm. It's card based and moving around. So it was like the first thing I made. And I joined that game jam and I followed Kat at Catling Gun from Peach Garden Games. I followed mm-hmm. her on Twitter. And then a while later, she at some point tweeted about the Lumen Jam. And I for oh this seems cool try and make something for this and so followed spencer and joined spencer's discord you know paying attention to what spencer was doing is how i first became aware of keegan keegan and x and i joined keegan's discord and (laughs) because i was a fan of like the work they they are doing joining keegan's discord at one point meant they linked in there to the brain trust and i think in the brain trust is where I got linked to your podcast and started listening to that and enjoying it so much. But yes, I feel so much of my late journey of discovery has just been like making like weird connections and following trains and following, I, I guess sort of like just following our bliss, following what we're enjoying. Sorry, that was very, very rambly for an extended period of time. And I, I'm aware that was also mainly just me talking me for an extended period of time. Sorry about that. No apologies needed whatsoever. We love long on this show. And it's like I said in the opening, it's not about me. It's about you. So this is your space to showcase who all of you are. Thank you. And also you, Finley. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. I, it's, 
I did not actually have something to say. I think I just made a sound that. Yes. So the journey, amazing. What I love that you really get, I think you're one of maybe three guests that have really given given me the like decade how we got here (laughs) sort of scenario which i which i love i i'm not i'm not chastising that in the slightest and it's really interesting specifically hearing your particular journey of game discovery we had another guest on here mv who also didn't really start with dungeons and dragons i think maybe 90 percent of all my guests have been engaged Mm -hmm. in Dungeons and dragons in their early process for some of the time some others got Blades in the Dark, Powered by the Apocalypse stuff, which are also, I consider, kind of now indie mainstream. Yeah. Like, if there were three levels, it would be, like, D&D as an enterprise brand, like, Forged in the Dark and Powered by the Apocalypse sit in a zone, and there's, like, all of us indie people making, you know, art pieces and expressions and examinations of those other zones, if you will. Yeah, no, that absolutely Um, sounds So I really love that you have a different... Yeah, I I love that that's been your first touch point, and you're also in a in a rare subsection of of the groups who have really engaged with belonging outside belonging and Dream Askew Productions. And Sleep Away was actually my first belonging outside belonging game. I played it actually with MV, and that was like when I first got into the Brain Trust. And it was it was an, I had never played a game that looked at experience i'm like a trad fantasy adventure i don't say i don't want to say junkie i want to say like i don't even want to say enthusiast but i do like them and the game i'm designing is one but i wouldn't call myself that's the only thing i do but i'd never engaged that's, that's with your background a, a, a game that was so yeah i'd never been engaged in a game that was about like personal expressions it was always about like class sets mm-hmm. and like work the the setting expression and stuff like that right but i never been engaged with the game that like looked at what i who i am So it the lineage, amazing, great. And you have hit a lot of unique subsections for the podcast in general, which I love because there's so many varied perspectives on game design. Mm. And I hope that with every guest, I have an opportunity to capture a new swivel of that lens. Yeah, it's what I love for, about the podcast. <laughs> thank you. So... Like I said, the first first Belonging Outside Belonging game I ever got engaged with was Sleepaway, and then I had an interview with Riley Rethel for Galactic 2E, which I note is inspiration for How to Embrace a Swamp Creature, or T-E-A-S-C, as it's commonly known, right? As, <laughs> I, uh, as you hit it with back. Yeah, I tend to always just shorten it to Swamp Creature in conversation. I think all throughout development, I kept oh. calling it Swamp Creature 2E, and then in the actual release, I cut the 2E off. <laughs> Heard. Cool. Swamp creature it is. <laughs> yeah, that may be. But I love the inspiration here, and we'll definitely get into some of the things that I think are really useful for the belonging outside belonging system at large that you and Riley have captured here. But the first thing I sort of want to engage with is how... Um, why did all of you sort of start the process of making Swamp Creature one E? Like, what what was sort of like the the generative seed for that? So, 
we wanted to participate in Record Collection 2K21 The Jam. And mm. so I think we just looked through our Spotify and made a whole list of like albums or whatever or songs where like could this be anything like i we've probably deleted this word doc after we finished it which is a shame because i doubt any of these ideas were too solid but like some of them are probably interesting mm-hmm. like i yeah i remember i think there was one point where we just listen out and be like oh this is a lot of interconnected people could this be like a fiasco playset or something could this be a lasers and feelings game or whatever and we just had a note that was how to embrace a swamp creature which is named after a mountain goat song. And we're just like, belonging outside belonging? Question mark. And it was a game we ended up settling on, but we kind of discovered what it was in the middle of it. Like, I, we'd really liked the song How to Embrace a Swamp Creature for quite a long time. It was on a playlist that our partner made us at one point and so i guess i kind of always associated i tend to have a different association with them what the song is literally about a lot of the time because i think i just associate it with a person oh. i care about a lot rather than the song's own meaning which yeah. is a bit about like like looking for intimacy in a kind of maybe more sort of pathetic way or maybe not pathetic that's maybe more judgmental but in a more sort of like this is a bad idea and you know it is mm-hmm. but yeah initially the idea was just like oh i could do a bunch of like cryptids as playbooks and i did decide the idea of like living in a swamp and i remember at the time noticing because i had three ideas that i was going to move forward on for record collection and i only did two of them because after i did swamp creature 1e i was like these were all about the same theme and i've said everything i want to say with this one but like they were all kind of about like friendship basically but a more cynical that sounds bad to be cynical about friendship but maybe a look at friendship where you're like maybe this isn't the best thing for you right now like these people or whatever but Mm -hmm. yeah its initial development was just like oh what is i looked up different like lists of cryptids and was going off of them like oh what could this person be about but yeah really gradually each playbook emerged more as like an experience on mental illness and it was always something that like we tended to have like a personal experience with but it and but i guess like the the thing that we always tend to emphasize when we advertise the game now often is like how much it's about our own experiences growing up and where we grew up and that just really emerged through design just while we were while we were writing it we realized near the end like oh this is this is semi-autobiographical and that was not what we intended to do at the start point and i don't know who in the system is responsible for that but it's where the game ended up and it's it's for the best i think like i think the uh, i when i when i like described the game or i think i was when i was working on the second edition i posted a bit to someone going Man, how does this read and they said it reads as intimately painful and i was like oh yeah that's that's what this is trying to do Mm-hmm. nailed it and then what caused the transition into wanting to re-engage with swamp creature and make the 2e version there's a couple of different factors so swamp creature i was about to say it was the last game we did swamp creature one he was made in a word document which our first five games or were the very last one we made in a word document was plural witchcraft highland rampage which is a hack of 
mm-hmm. Kazumi Chin's Invincible Sword Princess. That was the last one we made, and then we got a copy of Affinity Pro, which was not Affinity Pro. We got a copy of Affinity Publisher because Speak the Sky ran a publisher bundle for people who didn't have yeah, I remember. yes access to, you know, didn't have really the funds to get Affinity. And this was at a point being, this was a point where, yeah, my, my money situation was just like not very good, but I was like, and I was struggling up against Word a bit. So I got Affinity at that point and I started doing, I guess like bolder and more fun stuff with, with layout and design. And every now and then I was thinking, oh, should I go back and make some of these older games look prettier? Like that was initially all the idea was, was just now maybe make these games look prettier. But what pushed us towards... Yeah, because I, Finley, am the person who tends to do most of the layout, So, and that's an area I enjoy a lot. So, And that being a game I cared a lot about, I guess I wanted to provide that to it. But I held off on it a lot because I was like, ah, it's a game I've only really recently made. There's, you know, let's focus on making, like, you know, really cool layout and stuff for other of our games. But actually then what made us reconsider, and I think it was probably me who reconsidered and decided to do this as a second edition, it's it's actually your fault, Jeremy, because it was the <laughs> episode of this is the one you mentioned with Riley Raffle talking about Galactic 2E and listening to that and understanding a lot of so much of the decisions that Riley had made in taking stuff to 2E, I was like, oh, Swamp Creature could be such a better game. <laughs> like, it was just a thought I had. I was like, this is a game I'm really proud of. At the, even at the first edition, I was really proud of it for the emotional sort of texture of it. And I was proud of the response people gave to me when they read it, where they said, you know, they said, oh, this seems really affecting. I was proud of the fact that so many people said to me, oh, it's a really good game. I'd really need to make sure I was feeling okay before playing it. And I was like, that's that's good. And I'm glad that I signal in the game that you should do that. But I was like, okay, I got the emotional response. Right. But I was, yeah, listening to that podcast episode and listening to different discussions about like, you know, the idea of setting elements with their own token pause. Riley's talking about not enjoying the law, which I had included laws in Swamp Creature 1E because I was just including everything that was in Dream Askew, basically. I was more sort of right, mimicking right. how I knew stuff and hearing, I guess, how a belonging outside belonging system could be pushed in different ways and could be pushed in different changes. Yeah, it just made me want to revisit the game. And I'm very glad I did because Swamp Creature 1E would have been... I I was trying to remember this recently. I was trying to remember when it came out. Because in my mind, actually based off the timing, it probably came out in January because it was for Record Collection 2K21. And I know Record Collection 2K22 was in January this year. So I assume it was probably January last year. We were maybe like six months removed from discovering we were plural. And we included a plural character in the game, which was very important to us. And we liked that we did. But, you know, when I went back to read the first edition to think about, like, how how Worth is doing this, I had this reaction of, this plural character is very shallow. As a playbook, I was like, this is a 
is a quite sort of like shallow thing. And it felt like less playable compared to the others. And it didn't feel like it was necessarily the most fun. And it was, yeah, just a sort of engagement with something that was very new to us. Whereas doing Swamp Creature second edition, I was like, I can really consider how I present plurality in this game and I can have a better approach. So yeah, like it was a combination of things. It was wanting to make the game look prettier. It was thinking about it, like different mechanical approaches, which is really influenced by Galactic 2E and having listened to the episode of Draw Your Dice with Riley talking about all of the Galactic 2E decisions. And it was thinking, I want to do better on plurality on this. That amazing. First of all, thank you. That's the whole point of the of effing podcast. So great job, everyone who came on the show. We did it. <laughs> we can pack up and go home. Um, yeah, my I've only played. So like I mentioned earlier, Sleepaway was the only game of Blowing Outside Blowing that I've played to date, and I've played it two times, I believe, if I can remember correctly. And one of the it, in that episode with Riley, for anyone who may have not listened to the episode, one of the things that I and her commented on is, if you're not familiar with Belonging Outside Belonging, there's three sets of moves per playbook. There are strong moves, weak moves, and I can't remember what the middle move is called in Sleepaway. I think it might just be I think it's standard just regular or, or standard, yeah. Yeah, regular moves or something like that. But they don't really do anything so strong moves use up a token weak moves give you a token because they make you vulnerable they have they like sort of push to uh, offer up your agency to another player or to the setting and strong moves allow you to take agency into the setting or to another player and what i really enjoyed about galactic 2e and what you've also translated here in swamp creature 2e is that lateral moves allow you to share tokens with each other. So like do a token trading situation, which is what one much more like gameplay engaging first off and does something for the game. I don't remember specifically what we mentioned about the lures. I know that Riley didn't love them. And I honestly, I think you've done a, a, a bang up job for lack of a, a more nuanced term in terms of getting the moves feeling really engaged. And one of the things that really stuck out for me when I was reading over Swamp Creature 2E, specifically speaking to the wanting to deepen the playbooks and the forces of play that you have in here, which are sort of like your the translation of location slash pillars from the respective mentioned Sleepaway in Galactic 2E, that they're so... I have... I feel like those are not only whole person experience but also moments in any sort of person's life like i've i have felt i felt like the witch at one point in my life right i felt like the ogre at, or is it the ogre or the orc excuse me it's ogre it's yeah because when i said okay setting a game in a swamp everyone was like are you gonna be able to play shrek so that was my response <laughs> to this i have i have felt the ogre at a point in my life I have felt the lizard folk at a point in my life. And so uh, you, all of you have captured a essence of prose and expression that gives, help someone play, right? Help someone do the mental model of 
Swamp Creature 2E and engage in a belonging outside belonging game. And I really just big claps for that. And also, I know that you mentioned that shit, what is the game? Jade Dragon, just did it, Wander Home. The pick lists here are extensive <laughs> and very good. Like, there's a lot to choose here. <laughs> yeah, that was that was one in the... At the time of designing How to Embrace a Swamp Creature 1E, I had not read Wander Home. I'm not sure if Wander Home was available to read at that point, but there's probably more mm-hmm. previews of stuff of it. I read Wander Home, post it, and... You know, I'd say, like, Galactic 2E influences a lot of the mechanical approaches stuff, but definitely the approach to playbooks really borrowed a lot from the playbook, like, reading the playbooks in Wander Home and, you know, Mm. an approach of, like, a pick list where items are recontextualized by what you pick from them was, was, Mm. was definitely influenced by, you know, just finding... Wonder Home, so beautiful. I was just want to say thank you for what you were just saying about the game. It's it's really it's really heartening to hear that a lot of what we were intending came through. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the intent and the expression is there. And even though you, listener, have been listening to me ask, you know, how did we get from point A to point B in this case, another really nice thing that the dice have included in the game is the sort of like commentary at the end of the book that talks about like why you went, like why you made certain changes or why you engage in certain changes for the game proper. And also get, because of the Will-O-Wisp, as you were mentioning, I took note that you mentioned that it was sort of like not our best, best representation of the Will-O-Wisp. So when we did 2E, we engaged in that a little bit deeper. And you give a... a a very amazing explanation, at least for as someone who has never engaged with a plurality before in their life, I was able to capture a lot of, you know, how to engage with that positively and how to be patient with that sort of expression. And when I say patient, like not tolerant as in patient, but just like understanding that it's a learning process. If you've never engaged with something like that and you've done a really good way of adding or you've done an excellent job at providing clarity for to attempt to engage in that if there is no plurality at your personal table but you want to engage in the will-o'-wisp in a way that experiences or tries to experience plurality for someone else i think it's a i think it's an absolute banger of a job thank you yeah the will-o'-wisp definitely into e we really felt like we wanted to not I feel like Will-O-Wisp in 1E, you would probably only play if you were plural, because there's not much structure or guidance to like help you along there. But at the mm-hmm. same time, if you're plural, you probably found the Will-O-Wisp fun to read. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's really cool as a fantasy take there. Maybe I'm maybe bigging myself up more than I should think for the 1E where I openly don't necessarily care for that playbook but you'd maybe enjoy reading it but you'd also probably think this is a bit too shallow to represent my experience so with mm-hmm. Suya, i wanted the will-o'-wisp to be a deeper character or a deeper mm-hmm. you know possibility of a character thinking in terms of what a playbook is and i wanted to make it so yeah it was what you're saying that you'd feel empowered to try and explore that experience even if there wasn't stuff at the table and i know Maybe for some systems, they would prefer that people who don't have experience of plurality don't do that. But for me, I was like, no, I think this, I would like 
to create that possibility here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And was what I'm realizing really fascinatingly for me, I've actually attempted to play a plural character. I uh, I was playing a Dungeons and Dragons game with a couple of friends and the setting was a little bit like of a grim dark thing, very much like ghost and spooky and like cosmic horror sort of things. And at, I still am. I love the, uh, I don't know if you are familiar or any of you are familiar, but I love the Dragonborn in D&D a lot. Not necessarily their trite setting stuff, but just like the aesthetic of a Dragonborn. And specifically, I love Tiamat as well, the five-headed like demon dragon that's in there, devil dragon that's in there. So I played a character that was sort of a personification of Tiamat, but was a single singularity dragonborn body, but had different uh, kind of like personas about them that engage in different things throughout the story. And so now reading this, I'm interested in like re-engaging with that character and maybe doing, I'm not saying i I don't think I did anything that could be construed as insulting, but I would love to like re-engage and try to like put a little bit more structure behind how I engage with that mental model. And this is really like fascinating for me personally, Jeremy Gage to read. So I do think, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's an interesting thing. Like when you look at lots of different media with a plural lens in mind is this, you obviously can find like representations of stuff, which is, claiming to do plurality and is you know a frequently quite insulting like split personality yeah character you can find that but also i do think just in wider culture there's a lot of stuff where the way like a lot of fiction works where it's like oh that is kind of plurality in some way it's maybe not everyone's experience of plurality but it's it's definitely something Mm -hmm. that feels like it's on that spectrum the thing i always think about is that characters in 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 films having sort of entire imaginary conversations i the best example i can think of here and it's maybe quite silly is ratatouille is how much mm. remy speaks to his imaginary version of chef gusteau and someone who had recently mm. rewatched ratatouille to me was like saying like oh that's that's not not a system member Remy has there mm. like it's obviously at no point does uh, does the chef gusto idea front but it is a sort of fully realized person who is treated as kind of independent from Remy but is stated to exclusively be in Remy's mind I do think and just like with that D&D character you're talking about I think there's a lot of stuff where it's like oh this is a a, a take on plurality that is not claiming to be that and is often not deliberately that in any way but mm-hmm. i definitely think you like with, with when you have some awareness you do think oh it's it's more around than you realize if that makes any sense yeah 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 no it totally makes sense and you know you mentioned the ratatouille thing and even uh i don't know well maybe not i was gonna say like even there could be a consideration that for linguini ratatouille is also like a part of like linguine but the rat is like fully realized in its own autonomous body so that may not necessarily be the nail on the head for me but yeah i i agree i think the more that i think about it and you giving that example i i think of more positive maybe not maybe not like intentionally positive but more neutral or positive representations of plurality in media that isn't like the 
dangerous multi-personality horror film or something like that. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember... I can't remember how heavy we did or didn't go on don't do that character in in the playing plurality section. I think we I think we softened mm-hmm. it because I think we felt like if someone's read for all of this, they don't really need that that hammering over the head. But I think sure. there was one yeah. draft where it was very strongly like, don't do this because I'll know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure that, well, see, I like to believe in the good of the world. <laughs> I was like, I'm sure that people like will read this and and take it with kindness. And but you know, we hear the horror stories of other representations getting fucked up at the table. That's true. So I think yeah. I I think what was left in it, or was maybe just a thought I had, but then did cut out was, you know, how to embrace a swamp creature is about people who are messy as a game, like people who are very likely to hurt each other, but just through sort of, you know, being complicated, nuanced people. And the idea of saying, hey, here's my character. They're evil. I'm like, that's so boring. If you were to bring that to to this specific game, if you go like, oh, this is my character. They're a good person, and the other person in their head is evil. I'm like, that's really boring. (laughs) Was I think how I discouraged it. I was just like, everyone else has got nuanced characters, and you've gone with evil. (laughs) Wolf. The other thing I want to point out that is really cool in the game is the different modes of play you provide as well. In outside of the podcast circles, I've been talking a lot about like, what should a quick start be? Uh, like, should it be something that has half the core rulebook or character creation? Or should it just be something that like is applicable to like convention play or something like that? So I really love how you put in the theatrical play. I love the annual play, like just different modes of engaging with what the table might need and getting away from maybe like guided play or having something more structured than freeform play. And what's nice is that for theatrical play, I actually have had Sasha on the show whose episode should come out maybe in February or early March, I believe, if my calendar is right. I don't have it up in front of me. I'm guessing, but it's coming soon. Cool. But it's nice to see Sasha's name in in this piece as well. Yeah, no, that was definitely just a direct thing as I read. The girlfriend of my girlfriend is my friend, and that's a suggested. I think it's optional in there as well, like a way of structuring it. And I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, that's really great. But I didn't want to take away the ability to do that, like, open, more sprawling thing, but... For me, it was a solution to a problem I had when thinking about this game of being like, I don't know what this game is is the equivalent of in in other media a lot of the time. And I was like, you know, when I thought about myself playing it, I was like, I don't necessarily know where I would start, but some people would absolutely like take to that really easily. And so stuff like freeform play is there. But I did decide like, oh, this is something where like it could maybe scaffold a group who are like, I've loved making my characters and everything, and I love the setting and stuff, but I don't know... I don't know what they should do next. Yeah, I think it's... I think a lesson I would take away from here, for me as a designer, and maybe anyone who's listening, as the indie scene continues to mature over the course of days, months, years, whatever have you, looking at the change in available 
playtime. One of the, one of the hardest things of playing a role playing game is the commitment of time and trying to attain something that I mean it depends on the table, but may or for me feels complete. I I don't really love the like meandering 50 session campaign, especially as it relates to like trad adventure fantasy things. And I love very like succinct. We got an arc out. We have some catharsis. We feel good here. And I think a lot about the different in to my research in Japan, their games are usually designed and structured around one hour of play because they have such a busy lifestyle and or such a work oriented lifestyle. And I found that really fascinating that they still like it is a sort of read in between the lines thing for me that they still want to engage with role playing games, Mm. but they have had to design it as a response to design it in such a way that they can have a catharsis in, in an hour and feel like they like did a thing. And I respect that. And I think it's something where my mentality also goes like most of my sessions never last longer than two and a half hours Mm. because then like, my my mental energy is starting to wane. It's starting to hit 10 o'clock. Yeah. Bedtime's approaching. Like, I can't go beyond that. Anyone that's doing, like, the six-hour all-weekend session and, like, fully engaging <laughs> with play, you're a superhuman in my <laughs> This just made me think of an interesting question, what you're saying. How, I assume for the past couple of years, a lot of your role-playing has been online, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I've had some in personal before COVID, but yes, the last couple of years I've focused on online. Okay. Stuff. Do you, like, this may be completely different experience. Do you find it harder to focus for an extended length of time when doing online play versus in person, or do you find it's roughly the same for you? When I am GMing, there is no difference for me. I'm fully engaged the whole time. When I'm a player, especially as it pertains to, like, D&D combat and stuff like that, I can come to a point of zoning out just because engaging with the game takes so long to occur between turns Mm -hmm. in person. You can take a little bit for me as a player, you can take a little bit more of like an audience member position when you're watching things unfold. And I have the personal moral or value to like be, I've committed my time to playing this game with all of you. So I'm here to be engaged. There is no like, distraction of my phone or wandering of my mind unless that wandering is involved with what how would i respond to this in our theater of play so that is my answer does does that satisfy your question (laughs) i was mainly thinking just because i guess i'm curious looking at how maybe like designs of people whose entire experience of role, like design work coming from designers whose entire experience of role playing has been online. Cause I, mm-hmm. I, you were admittedly did not align with what my experience was where I do find focusing harder when I am not in person. But also mm-hmm. I was thinking this maybe is also very dependent to where you live, but like, Definitely for me, when I was doing in-person stuff, I'd often feel a pressure to do longer sessions just on account of making my travel time worth it. I was like, oh, if I've sure. if I've spent, you know, like 40 minutes or whatever getting into this place where I'm meeting up and playing Monster Hearts, we probably wouldn't go for just an hour because then it's like, oh, man, I'm traveling for longer than I'm playing the game. But obviously with <laughs> online, that's not at all a concern because 
if I've, you know, made a schedule, if I've made a schedule with someone, it's like, oh yeah, we've both got on at this time and then we're done after. I'm, I don't like, I don't necessarily have a, a theory here, but I, I guess I am curious if attitudes to, to timings and space and also, I guess, you know, differences of what players are doing and turn-based stuff when it's not their turn. I'm curious if that changes with a lot of people having spent the last, you know, two years only being able to access online only play. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with Randy Lubin and we talked about his specific like game design process and how he iterates on game design. And he looks at doing play tests as quickly as possible. But what he's specifically looking for are what are the highs and lows of play? What are those ebbs and flows? Mm. And how can we maintain the high and the engagement of a game as often as possible and reduce the laxness of not engaging with the game. And this is different than saying like pacing. This is, this is under criticism that like in D and D is a perfect example in terms of combat. If you have a group of five to five to seven players, any one person's turn can take from five to 10 minutes Mm. over five people's turns that adds up and then it comes to your turn and you've not you have not engaged with the game for potentially at a minimum like 15 to 20 minutes yes so in a play group of that size like that's a low that's like i'm not engaging i'm not playing right now i'm watching other people play the game and that can create those moments of like disengagement because you're like i kind of want to do something more valuable with my time right now. Because <laughs> like, this isn't like necessarily fun for me. And I totally respect that. And that's that's what can be like the general case, especially as it pertains to online, because then you're at your desk, you have so many things to fidget with, look at, someone's taking their turns, like, oh, I'll wait until my turn. So I'll go check my Twitter real quick. So I'm curious about that message I sent or an email or whatever, yes. like double to do double duty on my time. And like, not always in a, like just aloof way, but like sometimes you're just thinking about maximization too. It's like, it's not your turn. I can do this while we're waiting. I'll type up this thing. And then it comes to your turn. It's like, Oh, what am I doing? Like what's the yeah. game state now? No, totally. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was Jay Dragon in a medium article Jay did about play. I think the article is called playground fury and it's a lot of different sort of fragments, interesting perspectives on game design. And I think one, there's a taxonomy of terms Jay includes at the end for like different kind of mechanics. And one of them is, is fiddle toys, something that's not necessarily going to have an impact on play, but is sort of there to be, to be fiddled with. And I think I did see some conversations on Twitter about sort of like, mini games or something where it is something that someone can do while other turns are happening that keeps them engaged in the world of the game, mm-hmm. which is, I is definitely like a, an, an interesting thing in terms of mm-hmm. making games more accessible for a lot of people, obviously, you know, something like what you're saying, you know, 15, 20 minutes where you're not playing definitely for some people, that's going to be like so much harder to, to stay in a game just with those things going on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess though you're talking about like Randy's talking about maximizing stuff, I feel like this fiddle toy approach Jay Dragon was talking about is is another way to kind of address the same thing for 
just making certain play styles as as open to as many people as possible. Yeah, yeah. And and also looking at the digital environment, right? I think COVID showcased like how lacking the like, you know, VTT environment. This is speaking specifically for Dungeons and Dragons, but there could be also conversations about like internet access and stability and stuff like that and the pricing of internet, right? Like when it when it's an in-person situation, you're only paying for the game and potentially travel mm. in in some cases. But when you add online to the situation, well, now your games get a tiny bit more expensive because your internet is a part of that. Any digital software or tools that you need to purchase or subscribe to mean something as well at that point now, and they're tied into that hobby. So, and also the sort of, mm, maybe not necessarily outdatedness, although I have not a love for Roll20 because it's JavaScript is not amazing but you know the the ness of certain vtt tools and people trying to make new ones to combat the you know lack of accessibility for the older models or the more expensive models and trying to create something that's open source or accessible to different budget levels or something to that effect and so I think COVID and people who have like strictly online styles of play that go beyond play by post or forum play needs the, the tools need some updating and we're finding that and people are trying to do things. It's just going to take some time and it's still not always going to be perfectly accessible or usable because of financial reasons or access reasons because of where someone lives or anything like that. Yeah. It's you, you see a big, I think it can be, Interesting, obviously, how a game that is in person, say, really zero prep and very little setup, could suddenly be putting so much more burden on someone facilitating online because they need to, you know, to use a simple example, like, it is much simpler to just have a deck of playing cards and do what you need with them versus, you know, setting up a specific playingcards.io if you're if the game you're playing uses, you know, some funkier approaches to stuff. And teaching everyone else to use playing cards that yeah. I owe if they've not engaged with it before. No, absolutely. Like, yeah, it can real the, the sort of prep level or overhead of a game can, can change very radically depending on online or offline. Mm-hmm. I am curious. I don't necessarily know, but I assume maybe there are some where it's the opposite where, oh, if we are doing Mm. this offline, we need to own a huge amount of dice, which we don't have access to, versus some people being able to go, oh, we're playing this online, so I'm just going to use the Google dice roller, and that will serve all of my needs. You know, I seem Mm -hmm. there probably are some places where certain things become more accessible if you were imagining them played online only. Or accessible is maybe the wrong word, because obviously, like you're saying, internet access not a reliable thing at all and but more i guess i suppose i was just thinking in terms of a pricing overhead maybe changes a bit in both directions Mm -hmm, sometimes mm -hmm. yeah i i play a band of blades game and i will never physically run a band of blades game ever again because the amount of like bookkeeping paper that has to be 
kept around is insane. Mm. Like we had binders of <laughs> shit and like, to do it with like an online tool is vastly superior. If you don't have money for miniatures, they're like token tools and stuff for that you can use for D&D online, which makes that the overhead of that actually come down a little bit because the game... I know a lot of people try to play D&D Theater of the Mind, but like the game really does demand you play with the pieces because that's what it's designed to do. And to do that online is actually much more feasible. Albeit, you know, you're not using your fingers to move the things. You have to figure out how to do that with mice and keyboard. But it is cheaper to do it online. Yeah. So I think that's a great I think that's a great point that you're pointing out that it goes both ways in in some games cases. Yeah, definitely it super dependent on the game obviously, but all things are. Speaking of playing cards diet IO and since we're coming sort of to the top of the show, I want to give you the opportunity to sort of discuss either a further into plurality if that's something you want to engage in and I can I can sort of like cut this question out here but either engage in plurality more or if you want to get into the topic of like card affordances and card design or gameplay card design and stuff like i'm maybe i'd be maybe yeah maybe just go or more into the plurality stuff definitely because i have a lot of thoughts on playing card stuff but also i think i mentioned it it didn't hugely relate to the game we were mainly talking about i just thought like oh that's something i find interesting whereas the plurality stuff maybe threads in better and is also something which maybe where my and our perspective is is more useful than just anyone talking about this. So yeah, I'm happy to go on plurality. Sure. Well then, Finley, if you would like to help give us a little bit deeper of a dive into plurality just as um, you... I was going to say the word concept, but that's, like, not fair. Hmm. It's, it, I'm doing the thing where, like, you were talking about the entities earlier. Like, is this, the, like, the thing I need that like, I say in this moment? Yeah. Uh, it's, but, yeah. No, I totally understand. <laughs> with this identity type and just giving more awareness to it, because that's part of what this podcast is about, is, is giving exposure to other experiences in the game design industry, but also the collective world overall. What... Ooh, I know. What would be some guidance, potentially, for someone who has heard you talk about this today and something has sparked in them that, oh, wow, that, like, this is really resonating with me. What are some, like, resources you can speak to and sort of, like, give a a quick brief about in the next five, ten-ish minutes? Oh, yeah. So, I guess... A useful thing for me to mention is, I guess I'll just talk in brief about my own experiences with this, where I feel maybe if you're, if you're having this hearing right now, maybe not, but for me, I definitely avoided a lot of stuff about plurality, like way before I knew about it, like not in a, not in a judgmental way or stuff, but I just really avoided looking into it and looking into, you know, actual expressions of priority on the internet. I maybe purely had an awareness of DID, but maybe only in the sense of how that it is a thing that was getting misrepresented in media. And I definitely had an avoidance. We all definitely had an avoidance that related to not wanting to experience this. What broke through for us is a a singer we liked called Left at London 
tweeted about a song of hers actually being about virality and that awareness meant, oh, we kind of need to look at this now. But yeah, if you're maybe having experience where you're thinking in the same situation of something you've either avoided or maybe not, but it's just not occurred to you and sparked by hearing from people who have this experience. So the website where I took a lot of the explanation and swamp creature from because it's licensed under and it's a very stupid thing is there is more than one or this one word dot info and that can give a sort of straightforward overview that's also useful if you know you're definitely like i'm definitely not plural but i'll look more into this just so i can be supportive whatever it's a good website Mm -hmm. i then spent a lot of time looking at youtube videos by systems and the two systems i looked at a lot was a system called the Ring System and a system called the Alexandre System, who both do some nice sort of like educational stuff and is maybe useful for getting a sense of of what is what is out there, a sense of people's individual experience and sense of community. I would also say, and this is this maybe is a is not a thing that everyone would agree with, but I feel it's maybe useful advice is if you are thinking oh, maybe this is me, just try it out then. Like, see how that feels to to just say out loud, I'm plural, and I think maybe another system member is is this person. And, like, the worst-case scenario, in a month or whatever, you're like, that was embarrassing, I was probably wrong, I think something else was going on that I was empathizing with in this sense. And that ultimately doesn't matter because there is nothing wrong with having identified a way because it felt like it made sense and then realizing it wasn't the best description of you. Like I definitely at the early point of realizing I was plural had this big apprehension of thinking, but if I'm wrong, that's really offensive. And some people will say this, unfortunately there are some systems who are really fixated on the idea that other people shouldn't claim to experience privately unless they've been through these stringent diagnoses. I don't agree with that. I think, you know, diagnoses are hard to access, but also plurality can exist even without being a disorder in my perspective. But I would say feel free to identify with this and you may discover it works very well for you. And if you discover it doesn't, congratulations, you've learned something else about yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the human experience is so fluid. And I think that, I think with any identity type or any, maybe type isn't necessarily the right attachment, but identity experience is that we're in an interesting age of it being kind of on the surface level of awareness generally and i'm speaking to many other things like trans identity and not non-pronoun identity sort of like just just all the different sort of trying to get a grasp of what does it mean to be human period full stop and being one of the few creatures on the planet that have like the ability to have choice in the matter Mm. to, to make choice and think that I am in the camp alongside with you that it should be acceptable to attempt to discover something about yourself. I think is the, is like the sentence to discover something about yourself. It doesn't matter 
if that is plurality or if that is transition or if that is different sexualities or anything of that nature because to to prevent someone to say that you shouldn't even attempt this unless um, someone else dignifies that for you that's not really you discovering something about yourself that's someone else kind of like almost shaping you in a way yeah i think i feel like and you know it's that it's that what is the what is the word for that it's the it's the sugar pill it's the it's it's like a placebo effect sort of yeah yeah a sort of placebo effect where like if they say this thing like oh you are like you have all these adhd qualities you must have adhd well that that's how that person is then going to like they're going to take that data and interpret it and then make a decision of like, oh, maybe they're they're right. And then you you start to engage in in being that and that may then form into a truth about yourself. But that could also be and a forced shaping of someone's identity, which I, I think is more harmful yeah. than for someone to just sort of like stumble into it by their own choosing. I definitely think like if you were... Uh insisting that people can't identify a way unless they are told by someone else. I think all you really accomplish is, is probably a lot of harm. And this applies so much to like trans communities, less so nowadays, but I definitely feel at the time I first came out as trans, there was a lot of very weird online discourse of people attacking others as, as, as people who were faking being trans. And I think it's like, same sure. with plurality, it's like, if you are so obsessed with with trying to gatekeep this experience that you were going out there and accusing other people of, of faking, like, like, even if you were right, what does this actually accomplish? <laughs> like, even mm-hmm. even if you're right and you have caught one, one person who was cynically pretending to be trans or pretending to be plural, like, You've definitely still heard a bunch of other people who whose experience was was very was very real to them. And mm-hmm. like that 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 trade-off does not seem worth it. The worst case scenario you get from trusting people is that people, you know, find what is right for them and don't identify with the terms that aren't right for them. That doesn't really seem like a bad worst case scenario to me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And as always, listeners with a grain of salt, this is not like a permissions based show. Like anything we discuss that is at a larger human concept, you know, you can make your own decisions about the information that we're talking about here today. And I hold all power to walk back something that someone further educates me on. But today in with Finley and the rest of the dice here and talking about like what does it mean to cancel someone's ability to make self-discovery i think i sit in the court of like just let them let them stumble around let them figure out who they are because that's that's the most powerful thing about being human is that we get to choose and so we need to have exploration as a part of choice otherwise we run into boxes or status quos or traditional ways of thinking i think that it's important that people get to be children of the world in that in that sense yeah i'd I'd like to 
emphasize the listeners, like mainly what I'm talking about with plurality, you know, I'm, I'm mainly talking about my experience and the experience of other people in my system. And, you know, sometimes I may be passing on experiences of other systems I know, but I'd usually make that very clear. Like my experience doesn't have Mm. to be every other person's experience. There's, you know, there is room for, for lots of different things. And if, if my experience is different to yours, please don't take that as, as a dismissal of your experience. It's just a difference Mm -hmm. that exists. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. I think we did it. I think, I think we did the, we did, <laughs> we did the podcast. <laughs> I think we covered all the bases. Thank you so much, Finley, for being here to talk to us today and to the rest of the Dice system for listening and hanging out if, if any of them were present for this as well. And would you just give one quick outro again of you know, who you are, who you all are, how people can get in touch with you if they want to learn more about anything about you or your experiences or your games. All of the links that Finley here is about to provide will be down in the show notes for your access listeners. Yeah, so my name is Finley. I am a member of the plural system, the DICE. We are RPG designers who the current description we're using is we make indie games with heart and bites. And you can find us, you can find a big, basically like link tree for all of our stuff. If you just go to the dice.uk, where that includes our itch store, which is itch. No, it's the dice.itch.io. We do also have some books available print on demand through the Lulu bookstore. How to Embrace a Swamp Creature is one of those. We have our Patreon, which is just games by the dice, where we're going to basically just post Games sort of a week early when we finish them. It's mainly just going to be an advanced system, but also other stuff may be discovered as we go there. We have our own Discord and a mailing list that we have yet to use, but you can find all of these links sort of through the best hub is the dice.uk. Thank you everyone for hanging out with us today. I hope you learned a lot because I know I certainly did. And we all will catch you next time. Say bye to the people, Finley. Bye to the people, Finley. Bye-bye. Bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.